Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Community Radio WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we speak with local experts to explore issues that impact our sexual and reproductive health. Topics include, but aren't limited to, reproductive rights, access to health care, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and women's sexuality. We wrap up each show with our Ask Mabel segment, where we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. For more information on Mabel Wadsworth Center or to listen to past episodes, visit MabelWadsworth.org. You can also find Reproductive Left on WERU.org in the archives, on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for tuning in. This Friday, March 10th, is Abortion Provider Appreciation Day. To recognize that day, we have a great interview for you with Jennifer Thibodeau from the Abortion Care Network. Jennifer Thibodeau is the Communications and Program Manager at the Abortion Care Network, a national member-based organization dedicated to supporting independent abortion care providers and ensuring access for all. Jennifer has worked in reproductive rights and sexual health throughout her career and holds a master's in public health from Columbia University. Prior to joining the Abortion Care Network, Jennifer was the director of communications at Maine Family Planning. Before returning to her home state of Maine, she worked on community education and outreach programs with Planned Parenthood of New York City, Gay Men's Health Crisis, and was an organizer at NARAL Pro-Choice Massachusetts in Boston. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to Reproductive Left. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. So the first thing I just want to ask you about is um, the ACN, the Abortion Care Network, unites independent abortion providers across the country. Can you just um, define what an independent abortion provider is for our listeners? Sure. So independent abortion care providers are nonprofit clinics, there are women's health centers, there's they are physicians' offices um, and hospitals that perform abortions. Um, a lot of them are women owned and women operated. Um, some of them are feminist um, in in their founding and their values. Um, they are deeply rooted in their communities and so um, a clinic, an independent clinic in one community is likely um, has all their staff based in that community. Probably everyone who works there comes from, lives in, or comes from around that community. Um, their headquarters are usually in the same spot as their clinics. Um, and they, um, they provide the majority of abortion care in the United States. So, um, there's many, many independent abortion care providers. They look different. Um, every, there are as many different kinds of providers as there are clinics. Um, and one thing that they don't have is a sort of national or unifying, um, organization um, to to help with things like fundraising, um, HR, advocacy, things like that. So they're kind of all on their own in that way, and that sort of speaks to the independent aspect. So what are the unique challenges that the independent providers face in the United States? Sure. So again, it's going to look as different as every clinic looks because they're independent and they're um, 
the one unifying factor is that they're independent. Um, but for the most part, um, independent providers are usually found in more hostile states or hostile regions. Um, I mean, when I say hostile, I mean hostile to abortion access. <laughs> um, so you're going to find more anti-choice legislation, um, more anti-choice harassment, probably from protesters. Um, they are usually up against some of the more restrictive laws um, because they are in those states and regions um, that are not as supportive of abortion rights. Um, independent providers in the U.S. also provide the majority of care after the first trimester. Um, so they're typically dealing with the more medically, um, if there are medically complex cases, usually an independent provider is going to be the one who can provide care. Um, so they are, um, you know, it can be more difficult to find the right staff. It can be more difficult to deal with more aggressive protesters in those cases. Um, it's still a very safe procedure, but can be more complicated. Um, but I would say most of all, one, the probably the biggest challenge that they face is that they don't have that national infrastructure. Um, so they don't have name recognition and, you know, every single independent provider has a different name, has their own name. Um, it makes it harder for patients to find them because they don't have that sort of code word. Um, and it also makes, um, it makes it harder for donors to find them too. So it can be a little bit tougher to raise money. Um, it's harder to be visible sometimes. Um, and as much as being rooted in the community is essential and important, it's also tough to sort of be um, an open secret. Um, do you happen to know why they're more likely to be in hostile states or hostile to abortion access? Abortion, independent abortion care providers, many of them sprung up um, or opened up after um, the Roe versus Wade decision. Um, and they were founded on feminist principles. Um, and they are providers who, by and large, are committed to providing care, um, no matter what and no matter the case. Um, and so I think there's a lot of complicated reasons for the re for why some clinics are in some regions. Um, but when we're talking about independent providers, I think we are talking about the most courageous and the most steadfast folks who are doing the work they're doing because they are enormously committed to it. And so, um, of course, there's a lot of complicated history, but these are the people who um, are going to stick around. And they've stuck around in places where lots of other clinics have closed, either because of hostile laws um, or not enough patients seeking their care. And I think it just takes a certain commitment and bravery um, to stick around and to refuse to close your doors when, um, when a lot of forces are acting against you. Um, how many members does the Abortion Care Network have? And can you just talk a little bit about how the network supports the, the clinics? Sure. So we have about 80 clinic members. Um, we also have uh, over 50 ally members, and we can talk about them later. But in terms of independent providers who are actually performing abortions, we have about 80. Um, one of the biggest things that we do is build bridges for our providers um, so we facilitate connections 
between independent abortion care providers. Like I said, a lot of them are in these hostile states. Some of them are the only provider left in their state or their region. Um, When you don't have that sort of national infrastructure or something binding you to your colleagues, it's hard to find them. A lot of our clinics feel isolated, so we offer them different ways to connect with each other so that um, if they have a question about clinical procedures or training a new staff member or finding support for their patients, they can connect with one, one another and not reinvent the wheel and not feel so alone and talk to their colleagues about what's working well. Um, we also build those bridges between the independent abortion care providers and the allies. So allies are organizations that don't provide abortion, um, but do advocate for access um, and reproductive justice. Um, so in some cases, we can build connections between the clinics themselves and then organizations that are um, working on legislative advocacy or um, working with communities of faith, and they can connect in that way. Um, We also do a lot of staff support and professional development, so providing um, the clinics with the resources they need to get their staff trained. Um, We provide them with business tools, up-to-date information on what's going on legislatively, um, what's going on clinically. Um, We provide them with communications and media training, so that's what I do, that's my job. So that is a way for us to offer some training to individual staff members at our member clinics so that they feel more confident um, crafting messages and talking to the press and just talking to the public about what they do. Um, Because as I said, there really isn't that name recognition. Not everyone knows who um, independent abortion care providers are. So we want to give them the tools to talk about that. And then we support them. Um, in terms of getting pieces placed in the newspaper, interviews with radio, and things like that. Um, We're also starting a new program where we will be um, training social workers to provide um, tools for self-care, resiliency, and um, crisis support for providers specifically. So Indies, um, independent abortion care providers, we call Indies sometimes, um, they are the people who take care of everyone else and they are really, really great at it. Um, They don't always have folks to take care of them. So we are training a core of um, social workers across the country who can provide some of that support to our our indies. At Mabel's, we hear a lot when um, people come to our center for the first time that they're surprised at how nice it is, at how welcoming it feels. Um, so we've come to realize that there are a lot of misconceptions about abortion clinics. Um, what do you think are the, some of the most common misconceptions that you hear and, um, what, what does, what do most of the clinics feel like when you enter them? So I think that providers themselves are probably the best answering which misconceptions they hear directly. Um, because I'm in communications and I'm not working in the clinics, I think, probably I can speak to some of the cultural misconceptions that we have that I hear all the time. Um, And I'd love to talk a little bit about how those have real impacts um, on access and on providing care. Um, I think one that you sort of touched on when people come into the clinic and they're maybe surprised at how nice it is, is this, um, this misconception that abortion is risky or somehow unsafe or sketchy or underground. Um, I hate even saying those things because it's so not the case. 
Um, but there's that misconception, um, for sure that this isn't, this isn't normal, well, well regulated, medically informed healthcare. Um, and I think that leads to some very real consequences, including, um, I would say that the biggest example is trap laws we've seen lately. So targeted regulations of abortion providers where, um, anti-choice politicians are telling abortion clinics that they need to meet um, medical and safety standards far over and above what is appropriate for the for the procedures that they're providing. So um, they're treating abortion care facilities differently than their, their medical peers, if that makes sense. Um, and I think a lot of that is rooted in just anti-choice desire to restrict abortion, but I think some of it um, is it really comes from that misconception about um, abortion care not being normal or not being ex- exceptionally safe. Um, another one that we hear a lot and we see some detrimental legislation around is this idea that um, people who choose abortion are not sure of their decision um, or are unable to make that decision um, either on their own or, or in consultation with the people that they love and trust. Um, we know, we, I think we know from working in abortion clinics, but we also know from research, If you know, for people who like research, I love it. Um, we know that people are sure. We know that um, people who seek abortions have largely made up their minds. Um, and I can speak to independent providers at least and say that when, when they see patients who are not sure, they they send them, they send them home or they send them to another place where they can help work out their decisions. So um, I think one of the dangerous things we see because of that misconception is um, forced waiting periods. And those are terrible for patients and they're terrible for providers. Um, and they're completely unnecessary. They're just rooted in this belief that, um, that, you know, I keep saying people, but I do think there's a sexist element of it. I think there's this belief that women don't know what's best for them and need more time to think that through. And, and we just know that that's not the case. Um, and then I think, again, speaking to that idea that um, abortion maybe is not normal or is not common um, or isn't just a normal part of your reproductive life, um, we see all these bans on funding. So rules that tell patients that they can't, they can use their insurance to cover prenatal care or miscarriage management, but they can't use their insurance to cover abortion. Um, and again, you can only imagine how much that limits people's choices on what they do. Um, and it makes it really hard for providers too, because they're, they're dedicated to providing these services no matter what. Um, but when insurance won't cover it, it, it really puts a strain on both patients and providers. So you mentioned um, how common and normal abortion is. Um, how do you think we can help people understand that abortion care and abortion providers are just part of comprehensive women's health care or reproductive health care? That's a good, yeah. I think there, so there's a lot of facets to this question, right? Um, I think, you know, I think it's really easy to talk about um, stigma busting efforts and stigma is sort of this catch all word. Um, and maybe, I don't know if we throw it around too much or not without defining it. Um, 
So I'll get real specific here. I think people being honest about having abortions or knowing or loving someone who's had an abortion, um, I think it's important. Um, I don't think that it is the only thing we need to do, and I don't think it's going to change everybody's mind. Um, But allowing people to believe that this is rare and it's an exception and it only happens in extraordinary cases doesn't serve anyone because it is a very normal part of a lot of people's reproductive lives. Um, And most of the people who have abortions are already parents. So we know it's part, we know it's a normal part of their sort of reproductive life, um, the spectrum of of the care that they will receive and the care that they need. Um, I think also a lot of indies are... um, providing that that spectrum of care and I think that's important so um find out about your local provider become a patient of your local provider you will you may learn that they provide birth control that they provide std testing sti testing um they might uh, a lot of independent clinics have seen the need for transgender health care services and are providing those now too some provide prenatal care like <laughs> Mabel Wadsworth um we even know of a couple that provide at, that have birthing centers so um we we know that independent providers are are serving um serving people along the spectrum of their reproductive health lives. Um, I don't know that everyone knows that. Um, But that's not to distract from how important abortion care is. So I think even if there's a clinic out there and there are plenty that only provide abortion, we need to understand that um, seeking care there is just one of the many health care stops that a person may make along their, their entire lives. So we talked a little bit before about the unique challenges that independent providers have. Um, So what can folks do to help support these independent providers across the country? So five things. Ooh. I know. (laughs) There's so many things. There's no lack of things. I think... um, the people's instinct, and it's a good one, and I st- and I have on my list is to donate. So find your local clinic, donate to them if if they accept donations. Um, you can donate to the abortion care network if um, your local clinic does not accept donations. Not all abortion clinics are nonprofit, so I don't know. Um, I know that the Indies in Maine are nonprofit, and it it took me leaving the Maine circle to realize how many um are not so um so in maine you can donate to your local clinic um or donate to acn and we help support other clinics um you can also donate to an abortion fund and that that money goes directly to help a patient pay for a procedure um you can also volunteer so a lot of clinics need escorts to walk patients in um and out of the clinic um, you can hold a fundraiser. You can, um, if you're an artist, donate art to your clinic. Um, if you're on social media a lot, you can commit to sharing um, information that your local clinic shares. Um, contact them. Ask them first what they need. Um, some some clinics don't need um, escorts, for example, because they're on private property. But what they may need you to do is to show up and advocate for um, pro pro-choice 
pro-access legislation or against anti-choice legislation. Um, so if you are a person willing to be involved in legislative advocacy, that's a great way to support your local independent clinic. Um, you can become a patient. And most Indies provide more than just abortion care. So um, look into what they provide. And if you need any of those services, commit to going to your local Indie. Um, and then lastly, I would say just raise awareness about independent providers. Um, use their names. They, they, um, they suffer from a lack of name recognition and they don't have that sort of national branding. So make sure people know who they are. Um, make sure that you are um, sharing their events, sharing their information, talking about how great they are, go to their events. Um, and, and, you know, write to your, write to your newspapers, talk to your local Congress folks, talk to your, talk to the women in your lives who may need care there, talk to the trans people in your lives who may need trans care. Um, so, and I, so again, I would just circle all the way back to contact them, get to know who your local indie is, contact them, see what they need. They're going to be just like women are experts in their own lives. Indies are going to be experts in what they need too. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being on Reproductive Left with me today. This has been great. Um, just for our listeners, real quick, if they want more information on the Abortion Care Network, how do they mm -hmm. find that? You can go to abortioncarenetwork.org. Um, you can find out, you can see our total list of members, both clinic members and ally members. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter there. We email you and you can always... Um, share that with folks as well. Um, we're on Facebook, Abortion Care Network. We're on Twitter at Abortion Care. Well, that sounds great. Um, thank you again so much and for all the work that the Abortion Care Network does. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. You are listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. <laughs> We're moving into our Ask Mabel segment, where we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. This month on the show with me is our executive director, Andrea Irwin, and she's going to answer some questions about our sexual and reproductive rights questions we know our listeners are interested in. So, hi Andrea, thank you for being on Ask Mabel. Hi Abby, thanks for having me. So the first question is, um, I'm sure a lot of people are worried about um, the next Supreme Court, and we want to know what would happen in Maine if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned? That is a great question and very important so, as you said, we are, um, we do have a new Supreme Court nominee, Judge Neil Gorsuch, who Donald Trump nominated, and he did promise to nominate judges that would overturn Roe v. Wade, and he recently said that he was fulfilling that promise by nominating Judge Gorsuch. So we have every reason to believe that Judge Gorsuch um, will follow that line of reasoning, and his record certainly speaks to that. While we don't know his exact position on abortion because he hasn't written on it explicitly, he's written on other topics, um, such as his decision in the Hobby Lobby case, which put the rights of a private corporation, Hobby Lobby, over the rights of their employees to get birth control through the Affordable Care Act. 
and he's also written extensively about um, trouble, the way that he perceives the trouble of the left to bring grievances to court to solve social problems, when in fact that is the whole point of our court system is to help people uh, get access to justice when they can't otherwise. So we are concerned. Um, he is a replacement for Justice Scalia. So this particular um, confirmation, if he is confirmed, would not alter the makeup of the court. But because he's a lifetime appointment and he's young, he's only 49 and could serve for decades, this is clearly something to be concerned about. And with respect to your direct question about Roe, and it's uh, and if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, specifically what would happen in Maine, the good news is that Maine does not have any abortion bans on the books or anything like that that would immediately go into effect like some states do. Some states have trigger laws or trigger bans that would go into effect immediately if Roe v. Wade was overturned, or in some cases even partly overturned. So we fortunately do not have to worry about that at this time, but there are a couple of anti-abortion bills being considered um, this legislative session, one that would ban abortion as early as six weeks and one that would ban abortion after the first trimester. Um, Both of those are unconstitutional and unlikely to pass, but it's still concerning that they've even been introduced. And nationwide, there are at least half the states have some sort of abortion ban or trigger ban on the books that would go into effect immediately, or their legislatures are considering them this session. So across the country, there's a lot to be concerned about. We've been hearing a lot about threats to defund Planned Parenthood. Um, We've had people ask us often, so we thought it'd be good to answer it during Ask Mabel. How would um, defunding Planned Parenthood impact Mabel Wadsworth Center? So depending on the mechanism of funding that the politicians go after um, is really how it would impact um, our funding. So specifically right now, the bill being proposed would only restrict funding for Planned Parenthood through Medicaid funding. Um, There are concerns from some people that that bill would be expanded to actually ban all providers that offer abortion care from receiving any Medicaid reimbursement. So that would affect us um, because even though we don't accept federal or state funds um, such as Title X or other contracts, we do get reimbursed from Medicaid and Medicare. So we are contracted in that sense. Um, But fortunately, most experts feel pretty strongly that the proposal will only go to Planned Parenthood. And then the other way that Planned Parenthood gets funding is through Title X, which is family planning funding to help people with low income access health care. And Mabel Wadsworth Center has never accepted those funds or taken those funds. And so any attempts to Um, take away Title X funding would not affect us either. So fortunately, because we are independent in that regard, we don't have the same um, concerns right now as Planned Parenthood. Thank you. Thank you for being part of Ask Mabel this month. Thank you, Abby. It was great to chat with you. 
That's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. If you have a question for Ask Mabel, visit our new and improved website, mabelwadsworth.org, and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. If you'd like to listen to past episodes, you can find them on WERU.org in the archives or at MabelWadsworth.org. You can also find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or through whatever podcast app you use. Please tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30, right here at Community Radio WERU, 99.9 Bangor, 89.9 Blue Hill, or online at WERU.org.